Hello and welcome to episode 195 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and a producer. I am Robbie McCain, director, producer. And we are delighted to tell you that today's guest is the amazing screenwriter, Jim Hart. I can't wait for you lot to listen to this one. I had such a blast recording this one with Lucinda Rhodes-Takra, who can't be here doing the intro because she's on set of Confession right now. Her latest feature film starring Cole Meany and Stephen Moyer. She's shooting that right now, so she can't do this. But she did join us. And what you learn from Jim Hart today is incredible. He talks all about when he started to write Dracula for Francis Ford Coppola and how he set up the heart chart, his own heart chart, which measures characters' emotions. Yes, and he also talks about how he first got into filmmaking, starting in the world of producing before transitioning to become a screenwriting legend. Obviously, we talk about his work writing The Amazing Hook, starring Robin Williams, Dracula, as I've mentioned, and of course, working on one of my favourite films of all time, Contact. It's an absolute doozy of an episode for any screenwriter, for any producer and any filmmaker. Obviously, you're listening to this already, so it doesn't matter. But if you do like this, do jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. It means the world to us. And tell your friends. So, Giles, you're joining us live from the set of your latest feature. It's a romantic thriller. We don't know much about it. What's been going on? It's been amazing. What an incredible week it's been. As you can tell, my voice is a little tired. I am absolutely knackered. We're on day seven. So we shot six days in a row, had a day off, and we started day seven today. And it's just been one of those wonderful roller coaster rides where you all jump in feet first. Uh, a lot of people don't know each other, and you just go, right, we're making a movie. How are we going to do it? And we're in this amazing manor house in the middle of Northampton. It is one of the most beautiful places you could ever imagine you know that even those movies where the car pulls up and the, the shot just of reveals a manor house yeah. that's what we've got we've got one of those it's got a pond it's got a, well, a pond i say that it's got a lake the rooms are just gloriously set up and we're just basically it's been an amazing ride so far with a, a really incredible team i've been absolutely blessed with who we've got on board and the actors have just been a delight and i can't wait to tell you who they are I can't yet because it hasn't been announced we're waiting <sighs> for the announcement any day You're now us here, Come I'm on. so sorry I'm so sorry I mean you could probably guess by some of my Instagram and tweets and stuff but anyway it's a bit you of a do your own bit of detective you work. could do your own detective work if you really wanted but it's the screen it's the screenplay that I've been working on for the last sort of month to get it mm. into shape for filming right now but uh, do you know what I've learned Robbie from doing this is what have you done Charles I've learned <laughs> to always try and think about day for night when you're shooting in winter uh, mm everything changes you don't have all your lovely day shots because you can only mm. shoot until three really three thirty, because it starts getting dusk so you have to plan either shoot day for night or move a lot of your scenes tonight so you end up doing split days which mm. is great in principle but that often means you're moving location now whenever you move i say location i mean from one room to another but as soon as you do that it's a whole shift it's a massive move and you've got to relight through a different window you've got maybe a different costume 
costume because it's a different day, different hairstyle, and it takes so long. So scheduling a movie like this is so important. And luckily we were on top of it from the beginning, but because of COVID and the situation we had, we couldn't recce as much as we would like. Mm. We couldn't get in as much as we like. So, you know, one day recce, quick whip round, suddenly you're on set shooting. And the first day we were shooting, well, first day we arrived here, it was the first time most people had seen it and we had to have a COVID test which took an hour you know of everyone doing it thankfully everyone passed um, actually sadly one guy who was playing uh, a small role in the film he did get he had COVID from his test that he wasn't when he oh, was on no. set with us so he couldn't join us that's really sad yeah. it just goes to show you you know if you're a filmmaker or whatever you can't be going out party you can't be breaking the rules because you're mm. making films split days can be really tough because obviously of course you're doing two sets of um, starts and two sets of wrap ups per day mm. so that's kind of you know it doubles basically all of the kind of admin time that you need to do I mean it's got to be quite challenging it's ridiculously challenging it actually is it really makes you think and you've got to sometimes condense things that you wouldn't normally do um, and it's been really challenging on on our art department who every mm -hmm. time you move a location it's a whole new setup like I say they've not been here before really one quick recce but then you're going right well we need that has to be there and and there's major fight here or food has to be brought in here and it's so much to do when you obviously no shops are open either for costume fittings so we had mm. to do them via Zoom so suddenly you're on set and you're going that's not right well no one's open to get a replacement it, your ordering stuff is really difficult takes time we're in the middle of nowhere no internet no, it's honestly you're going oh my god how, how are we actually managing I have no idea but the other thing I have learned um, is that I'm doing my shot lists for the day after tomorrow Mm -hmm. So obviously I've done all my shot lists anyway, but now you're here, things change. So what I'm doing at night is obviously going over the stuff for tomorrow, but then I'm also doing the stuff for the day after tomorrow so that I can distribute that to all my AD teams, all the producers, sure. so they kind of know what the setup's going to be so for the day after. A, a 12 hour window to Exactly, to rather it, than yeah. me suddenly doing it at night when I'm really tired for tomorrow and everyone's waiting for it for the call shoot for the day after. So that's been mm -hmm. something that's been really useful as well when people have yeah. come up on set and gone oh for tomorrow shoot or the day after and you kind of go oh my god because there's so much going on it's really hard to think about tomorrow so I'm prepping even more than I would um, and how much stuff that stuff can you even do in advance before you even have started the first day shoot or does it have to be sort of you know all be done once you're kind of in full view of all of the elements that you've got yeah you do as much as you can obviously like I said I did all my shot lists I did my really terrible storyboards I can't draw obviously as everyone <laughs> knows and I did them anyway but once you get there to set you see everything different the actors mm -hmm. block it differently you, you see a new shot that isn't on your shot list mm -hmm. uh, so you just plan things differently so therefore you do it again and when you've got a reduced team as well because of covid you have to have less team and we really could do with a few more bodies to help in certain departments because it's really tough but you know everyone's chipping in everyone's just picking up stuff and that's been really lovely to see and and honestly i'm delighted with the footage we've got i've watched the rushes the performances are out of this world Amazing. and i'm honestly delighted with what we're getting i just hope i know we've got stuff coming up and i've already keep pushing stuff back a day back a day and the producers are going guys where are we going to fit these in so i'm condensing stuff now and just you know really thinking about my shots and really mm -hmm. concentrating to make sure i don't lose stuff because that's the important thing vital yeah. story it's all about story so that's what's key 
concentrate on that and the rest you can lose (laughs) (laughs) and what's your kind of goal for this coming week well this coming week is the final sort of scenes in the manor house where we are Mm -hmm. and then after that we're in london for the next two three weeks um of course so my goal for this week is just to complete what we have to shoot here which is a lot of the end of the movie so it's a lot of the big sort of emotional heft a lot of the big drama stuff so it's a lot you know we've got to dig a grave we've you know got people put people in it we've got to do you know big dark room where there's big fight scenes uh, sequences take place so there's a lot to do here so basically I'm just getting through this (laughs) as in you know really concentrating not stopping and just fighting through to get the best shots and the best sort of uh, performances and movement and direction I can that's all you can do really amazing man never give up never surrender <laughs> never do it and then, do you know what and this is hopefully inspiring for people out there listening that you can make a movie even in tough times and dark times you can do it and mm-hmm. in some way if this inspires you to go oh god why did I stop for COVID or why am I not trying to make my dream happen because because no don't let anything stop you even if it is really hard and there is problems and there will be you can still get through it and you can still go make a movie great advice Right, we should uh, probably get to Mr. Jim Hart, our main topic of this episode. We absolutely should, and you're in for a treat. You're going to love him. He's amazing. I'm going to do my shot list for the day after tomorrow, uh, and <laughs> I look forward to catching up with you all next week. Uh, thanks for this, Robbie. Best of luck, Jars, and uh, see you next week. Cheers, guys. Enjoy. Where is everybody? Well, I'm in North London. Lucinda is in. I'm in Suffolk. Oh, great. We're in North London. We just stay in, in Muswell Hill and Highgate. Gorgeous. Yeah, I used to live there. I used to live in Muswell Hill for a little bit. Yeah, it's really lovely. lovely. We have more friends in London than probably any other city. With film and the productions and what have you, we've made great friends over the years. Bob Hoskins was a great friend. Uh, he and his family, the kids have all grown up together and uh, we miss it. That's not, it's a drag not being able to come over there. That's so nice to hear. But, yeah. It, London and England does have a special charm, doesn't it? And you guys are being vigilant and taking precautions? We were just having that conversation, actually, uh, Jim, because both uh, uh, Giles and I are both going into production within uh, two weeks myself and Giles it, it, within three weeks. And obviously we had this terrible shock, didn't we, on Saturday about this second lockdown. So the extra precautions, you know, we have to yeah. be even more vigilant during um, the lockdown and shooting. It's going to be very interesting shooting during um, pandemic. Yes. Well, I have three friends and that are in production, two here, one in Montreal, two in Montreal, um, two TV series here, and they're what they're having to go through, I mean, you have to be really diligent and uh, get used to it because it's going to be this way for a while. Yes. Yeah. This is our, we're now Zoom, we're now Zoom town. This is what we have to do now. We have to get used yeah. to this. And I think we do. And yeah. actually what I found, and Lucinda, you're probably the same, especially when you're not traveling in as much and in LA, New York less so, but when you're in LA to travel in for a meeting, well, it's kind of your whole day. Two hour drive every, every which way you go. Totally. And it's not far yeah. off with London. Okay. It's not a two hour drive, but sometimes you're on the train for an hour, hour and a half and back again. And actually this Zoom situation or there is other platforms available. Um, you can have that sort of nice rapport online. Um, it's not the yeah. same, but you do get a lot of stuff done. Everybody has a good seat. It's, it's, it's uh, when I do my master classes now, uh, I yeah. find it much more efficient because they can see the examples. They can see the chart. They can see all this. And everybody has a good seat. They're not in the back row. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, 
That's a really good point. So in, that, in that respect, it's been much more efficient for what I do. Yeah, well, that's the other thing as well. When I've done online events, people from all around the world can attend now, as before they couldn't when it was in person, when we did them in yeah. London. It was people like, oh, well, we can't come, and now they can. Tell us about Heart Charts. The Heart Chart, why not? When I was working with Coppola on Dracula, which was probably the, the single most complete experience I've had in my career as a screenwriter, I watched him prep to shoot a film the way uh, I'd never seen anybody prep. Uh, we did radio plays. We videoed rehearsals. He would build a, a storyboard with live uh, with the live recording. So we always had a running time of the film. All this wow. preparation. And I watched him walk onto the set knowing exactly what he was going to do every day. We get in the editing room about four months before release, and we've had a, two or three disastrous previews. Uh, and he calls me one night at midnight in New York and my wife says, Francis is on the phone, you know, and I guy said, hey, everything okay? And he said, I want you to get on a plane in the morning and get your ass out here. I hate you. I hate the script. I hate the movie. I hate the actors. I hate the studio. Wow. I hate, the, I hate, why did I ever get involved in this mess, you know? Mm. And I want to show you that movie. So I couldn't wait. <laughs> that was 15 years of my life. And suddenly I had the greatest director I could possibly have. And he was saying it's shit. I flew out the next night, and the next night I was there in the Godfather screening room at Zoetrope in San Francisco with the big leather couches and the cigars and the, the you know, the cognac and the wine. Right. And strangely enough, two women that spoke Romanian. I don't know why they were there. He didn't even come down to see me. He stayed up in the up in the uh, penthouse. He called me. He said, okay, you're here. He said, I want you to call me as soon as you finish, and I want to come down and we'll talk. I sat there for the next two hours and got drunker and drunker and angrier and angrier. Uh, at what I was seeing. It was a piece of shit. You know, it was, it was, I was like, ah, this is not the, the, we saw the dailies, we saw the shoot, the script was hailed and praised and, mm -hmm. you know, the actors all loved the script and everything. At first, that never always happens or usually never. And so he called me about two in the morning and said, you haven't called. I said, no, I'm pissed too. I, I, I hate you too. So he said, well, good. Let me come down and tell you what we're going to do. So he came in like a big 18 year old kid you know, in his yeah. cravat and little cigar and his pointed Turkish shoes and his smoking jacket and everything. And he sat down and he pitched me this movie he wanted, the story he wanted to tell. And I'm going, didn't we just do that? I thought that's what we shot. Sure. And so for the next two weeks, we sat in the editing room together and we went through and reviewed all the footage. And we kept identifying pieces of narrative that we'd that we didn't shoot or didn't know to shoot or the footage informed us of a different way to, to look at the, the film. So it was like a rewriting. We, we, we literally rewrote with film and I'm sitting there making notes. And so I would write beginnings and endings of scenes or middles of scenes or pieces of narration. We didn't reshoot one scene in the film, but we had to go back and reshoot to fill in the gap with these pieces of narrative. And I'm always, I keep saying, Francis, there has to be a way in the script stage to be able to head some of this these problems off before you get to the editing room especially independent filmmakers they can't call up you know gary Ullman and winona Ryder and have the studio put the sets back up and they can't do that no i'll just give you a quick example the ending didn't work uh the the ending in the previews winona's supposed to go into the castle with when dracula with a knife in his heart and she kills him and kisses him and and she's re he's redeemed and she's healed, you know. And then she walks off into the sunset with Keanu Reeves. And the audience would audience would boo. They didn't want 
that they wanted to see Dracula and Mina stay together. George Lucas looked at the film and said, hey, you broke your rules. You know, in order for her to complete the mission, she's got to cut off his head. That's the rules you set up in the movie. Yes, you know, indeed. He was right. How do we miss that? Francis and then called me and said, hey, do you think we can get Winona and Gary back together if <laughs> Winona cuts off Gary's head? And I said, yeah, I think that's the only way you can, you can get them back together. So in that last scene in the film, the finished film, you see yeah. beautiful matches with wigs. They were both in different looks then for new, new films. Mm -hmm. There are close-ups and master parts of the master and close-ups that were shot 18 months apart. Love it. And it's seamless. And now the ending is complete. You, she doesn't go to Keanu. She cuts off his head. You see them up in the heavens together the way the audience wanted them. But somehow we miss that in the writing of the script. And I finally said, I got to figure out a way to do it. I got to figure I have to f have a way to not go through this again, or at least be able to head it off at the pass, you know, at least be able to tackle it. So Francis gave me three questions. He said, why don't you try this? There's some old journalism questions. He gave me three questions. I wish he'd given them to me before we started, you know, and real basic screenwriting 101 questions. And uh, I expanded those and I said, okay, I'll do that. And and I started analyzing my scripts as I, as I would write them or rewrites that I was going to do. And I started imposing these three questions on, on, the, on the project. And then I expanded it to 10 questions. It was beginning to teach me to, to write character-driven narratives as opposed to plot-driven. I was a plot guy. Right. The plot dictated what the, what the characters did and when they did it. And what I learned from the experience on Dracula, which interestingly opened and set broke records and made Francis well again and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it had a happy ending. But... What I discovered was that by shifting all my focus to character-driven narrative, it opened up a whole other world. When I would get my heart checked every year, my EKG, and you watch the needle go up and down. Mm. And I said to my cardiologist, hey, I wonder if I can take this principle and apply it to a screenplay. Can I measure the heartbeat of the characters on the page you know, as they go through the narrative? And will that inform me as to pace what I'm missing, what I'm losing, what I've lost, what I need more of? So we developed the heart chart. And it literally was drawing a map of your character's emotional journey through a series of signposts and measurements so you could get, come to a satisfying ending. We did not have a satisfying ending on Dracula. So not a happy ending, not a sad ending, satisfying ending. So that became one of my questions. Do you have a satisfying ending? Is your audience satisfied with where you have led them? You know, are they pissed off? like people were when they saw the end of uh, Game of Thrones, mm. you know, mm. uh, or when they saw the end of Lost or when they saw the end of, of the, the, the Sopranos, you know. Mm. Do you have a satisfying ending? It's now, it's now a, an app that's available online. We used to draw them. I used to, there's, there's the Dracula chart when I drew it at Austin Film. I used to draw them. Nobody could read my handwriting. So Guy Goldstein, who developed Writer Duet, came and did the app. Right. Okay. So shameless self-promotion. No, please. That's what it's about. This is the toolkit. This is now used all over the world and started at the Austin Film Festival. Then I use it at the Sundance workshops and uh, the, the Equinox workshops all over Europe. Yeah. People kept saying, yeah, I want a book. I want a book. So we made a booklet. That's that's as thick as my toolkit is. Robert McKee's is this yeah, thick. Yeah, it's really too thick. This is collecting dust on my shelf. I've opened it. <laughs> this is all you need. Never face a blank page again. I love that. You might face some shitty ones, you know, and toss a few, but they won't be blank. It's now used all over the world. It's uh, by and I and you can read the testimonials on the website. Beginners and people that have won Academy Awards that think they don't have to learn. I, I didn't think I had to learn anything. 
I had Spielberg directing Hook and Francis Coppola directing Drain. What did I need to know? Mm-hmm. I was, you know, who, you know, there were parts of me that didn't smell, you know. So this opened up a whole new way and gave me the confidence when I take on a new project or a revision or a rewrite. I know exactly how to analyze. It's like being an auto mechanic. You need a new set of tires. You need your brakes changed. You know, you need to check oil. I wanted to make it a more mechanical process as opposed to this woo-woo magic, you know, ether voodoo that some people have and some people don't. You still have to have talent, but this forces you to write. You can never sit there and go, I don't know what to write. As soon as you start answering the first question, you're writing. It's really great. Well done. And it's just super. Where can people find this? I mean, I take it you go to the heart chart. Yeah, the, you go to go to hardchart.com. Uh, we just the toolkit is there. The story mapping tool is also there, which is a monthly subscription. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can opt in and out whenever you want to. There's no penalty. The toolkit is invaluable. And we just now posted the four film masterclasses we did at Austin Film Festival two years ago, which takes you through the toolkit, takes you through all the, the, the uses and examples of the toolkit. I mean, I had when one of my workshops, one of the guys put me on pause and went and, and opened up his script and solved a problem right there. And then went back and came back to the, and told me that said, Hey, I just, you just, this third question you asked me, I just went, Oh my God, you don't have to wait around for inspiration. I mean, I think Jack Linden said, you know, you don't wait around for inspiration. You find the biggest stick you can chase it down and beat the hell out of it. And I hear so many people, I don't know what to write. I get lost. I get stuck. This toolbox uh, gives you a set of tools that you have to use. It doesn't do it for you. I mean, everybody thinks the chart's going to write their script. It's not going to write the script, but it's going to reveal to you the emotional journey, the ups and downs, the heartbeat of your characters. Uh, and you can tell when you're flatlining. You can tell when you've lost a character for 20 pages. Mm-hmm. There it is on the chart. Where do you go? Or where did she go? Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives you those audience moments. And it's not a formula. There's no chart that's alike. But it does have these, uh, this is where Chris Vogler and I agree, we're close friends and share a lot of the same principles. We, there are certain storytelling principles that are burned into the ether of the universe. You can mess with them, mm-hmm. but you can't avoid them. You know? And structure is, uh, I'm a big structure guy. Structure is liberating, and knowing structure is liberating. Yeah. It doesn't constrain you, it frees you up. Well, what I'll do is I'll stick a link to that in the show notes, absolutely. Um, and do go there, you get 20% off um, for listening to this podcast. It's really cool for you. Thank you for that, Jim. No, really appreciate it. Now, obviously, you go under James V. Hart, but obviously everyone calls you Jim, right? So I, just to clarify that, so <laughs> get that correct. It's so funny because I was Jim V. Hart on Hook, and suddenly when I got to Dracula, people said, you know, that didn't sound right with Dracula. And I, I was always jimmy so uh most people call me jv or jim or hart but Mm. james v hart was made my mom feel really good you know she more of the proper name Mm. so uh that's what i do now when i write it's uh it's either jv hart or james v hart jim Mm. is 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 uh, when we're in the bar perfect which is kind of what we are now we're in the bar we're having a chat Well, yeah. if I'd have known, I would have got a whiskey. Yeah, this is full of whiskey. A little early for me. Of course, because you're in New York, where it is quite crisp uh, there at the moment in terms of the weather. It is crisp here in the UK yeah. right now. I wanted to talk about your sort of journey to get to Hook and Dracula and Frankenstein, because you started off as a producer, right? I mean, you were... you. you yeah. were 
producing movies before you wrote uh, Give Me an F, um, your first movie. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell us, tell us about your journey to get there. And then because after Give Me an F, you, you wrote Hook, you know, and then straight into Dracula and straight into Frankenstein. Well, I, I, wrote, I wrote a bunch of scripts between Give Me an F and, tell me. Yes, and Hook tell us. that didn't get made. Um, well, I grew up in Texas uh, and my dad was a big drive-in movie guy. So we were always hooked on films. And oh, okay. uh, I decided very early on that I wanted to somehow be in the movies. Um and uh, I had the good fortune of uh, going to a, a very unknown film school at SMU in Dallas. Mm -hmm. That was that took it was so we were so small. We were took place. We our meetings were in the um, theology department, you know. Um, but G, but Dr. G. William Jones was this amazing head of the department, okay. who brought us an education that I couldn't have. I, you know, you you would think UCLA, USC, you know. NY, NYU, mm -hmm. Columbia film. Uh, I mean, we had he, uh, we had um, George Roy Hill come with a wet gate answer print. Know what a wet gate answer print is? No. Ah, in the, the days when you used to print them on film, it was the answer print, the first print you made off the negative. Yes. And they called it a wet gate. Right. Uh, he brought uh, Butch and Sundance to show our full 35-member department. Wow. We were the first college audience to see Butch and Sundance and George Roy Hill sat with us for three hours after that film for Q&A. Um, Dustin, Dustin Hoffman and uh, Jack Nicholson showed up with Easy Rider, which had more than 35 people. Um, <laughs> and I watched Jack Nicholson get every co-ed in the room and signing their phone number on his arm because we didn't have, you know, we didn't have, you know, cell phones in those days. But then we, we got to see Easy Rider. Robert Altman. Yes. Brought MASH to SMU. Fox is going to dump it, and he brought MASH to SMU at our festival. We were the first audience to see MASH, and it saved the film because the reaction was so over overwhelming. Fox had to pay attention to it. So I got an I got a I got a, and and we were unique because we weren't any kind of big time school on the big, you know, big time film school. Mm -hmm. um, I was lucky enough to Ellen Kit Carson was a Texan. Ellen Kit Carson, I don't know if you know who Kit is. He was a great journalist and leader of the indie film movement and um, um, sort of broke, sort of helped break Wes Anderson's career with Bottle Rocket. And, um, nice. He was a kind of a legend to us Texans. And he came and lectured at our class, and I raised my hand and asked two or three questions. And afterwards, he came over to me and said, come on, you're not going to have coffee. Hmm. Um and we went and had coffee. He said, "This is what you're going to do. You're this. You're going to write, and you're going to tell your stories." And I can already just tell by the kind of questions you're asking. So I didn't know you could write. I, I always, as a producer, I always, you know, you, you. I didn't know that. Um, I just thought the actors, you know, did what the director told them, or the actors showed up and and improvised and just said the words. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. I didn't know it was like exterior Sherwood Forest Day, or you know, Robin Hood <laughs> yeah. and leaps and the uh, welcome to Sherwood. Um, mm. So I started writing in in school at SMU, uh, and I had an English professor who outed me and read my essay in class wow. uh, without telling me they were going to do that. And everybody was kind of shocked that I was going to go into the arts because I was a fraternity guy and all this stuff, you know. And um, and it, it was and I wrote a play again in at SMU. They got a lot of accolades. And then when I went to, when I went into the business, a bunch of Texans came to me and said, "Let's raise money for movies." But I wasn't a writer. So I produced two or three 
independent films, one of which was again, a little mini classic. But I was always worried about, I was always reading the scripts going, hmm. So I started rewriting the scripts. Um, okay. And my wife encouraged me to write because I was happier when I was writing than when I was producing. Maybe I should do that. Yeah, maybe you yeah, should. really. <laughs> I wrote a script based on my fraternity days at SMU called The Frat Rats, mm -hmm. um, which became the basis for a huge lawsuit on Animal House. Um, right. It was a raunchy, and I put somebody else's name on it. I put somebody else's name on it that I hated in school, so nobody would know it was me. <laughs> Love that. It's so them. They didn't do it. It wasn't me. Yeah. No, I circulated the script and it got a lot of people going, this is really, you know, this is raunchy and nobody talks like this. And this is, you know, pretty, this is pretty savage humor. And this is really, you know, so we almost got it made and then Animal House eclipsed it. But it got me, it gave me the bug. Right. Um, I finally copped to the fact that I wrote it. Um, and I started, and it's when I was writing comedy. And the one comedy I had made was Give Me an F, and that cured me of ever wanting to do a comedy again because my script was so much – it was like MASH for girls, you know. Okay. It, was, it, was, it was like um, a Porky's for girls, you know. It, mm. was, it, it, had, it was raunchy, and it was the way women and girls that I had grown up teaching cheerleading with talked. I became one of the girls. Right. Um, and they changed it and took, took – the took the, all the edge out of it, all the women talking scandalously, you know, and then Slapshot came out and I proved my point. Yeah, you know? um, so they should have stuck with your script. Me, it cured me of writing comedies because it was, um, they took it and just, and it's kind of a weird cult film, you know, it's, it's got a following. Mm -hmm. I think Fox re-released it as TNA Academy Part 2, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's very mild and very bland to what I wrote. But I said, yeah, I'm not doing comedy anymore. So I went to sci-fi, which was my big, my big, um, I was a big sci-fi kid. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a script called Protector mm -hmm. uh, that my son, Jake, still thinks is the best thing I've ever written that Spielberg and, and uh, Frank Marshall got involved in. Okay. Um, and it was, a, it was very early on in the special effects game. It was about video games training being used as a training device by a dark ops military operation to train kids to go power power this weapon system, okay. not unlike Ender's Game, yes, but more like but more like Top Gun. It was more reality based, like Top Gun is. The kids were learning to fly jump jets in the back, and they could operate the systems. And Stephen loved it, and Frank loved it. We never could get it made because they, they couldn't figure out the special effects were so sophisticated. This is 1982, right that they couldn't see a way to do it. Sorry to jump in, Jim, but how did you meet Steven and, uh, and, and the team, Steven Spielberg and, and the guys to even get the scripts to them in the first place? Well, I had written a, a, a script about the modeling industry. My, my wife was a model, so I'd written a script called Hose Job uh, about <laughs> the modeling industry that got some acclaim. Okay. And I had a, got, uh, uh, my agent set me up with a meeting with John Tarnoff, who was in an MGM. Right. And I went in and pitched John Tarnoff, protector, and he went, oh, my God, uh, let's go downstairs and see Frank Marshall right now. And I went, really? Hmm. So we walked down to Frank Marshall. John called Frank and said, Frank, I've got to, you got to hear this. Right. Um, so we walked downstairs to Frank's office and we play, played video games and I pitched him the story. Um, okay. and they, he wanted to do it. Now, at that point, he didn't show it. He didn't show it to Steven until after we'd done the draft. This, Frank was doing this on his own. Suddenly, I was, and, and also, I'd, met, I'd known Stephen. We'd met um, 
years before we had a lot of mutual friends and he actually dated my wife um okay uh before we were married (laughs) before before we were married um so frank loved it and he went off to do indiana jones and et came out all this stuff happened while we were developing protector Mm. It, it moved to paramount with katzenberg it had a life of its own. It's one of those unproduced scripts that you know that people kind of talk about. But it put me in. It put me in that world. Got and it, thank, thanks to John Tarnoff, who said, "Let's go see Frank Marshall." Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. Right place, right time, isn't it? Sometimes. That was in 1982. Yep. I didn't have a movie made until 80, whatever it was. 84 was uh, giving me an F, right? Or probably yeah, 83, me an F, which which didn't help my career. Right. Uh, so I was a development deal guy forever. I wrote for Rufford and Newman. Uh, I wrote for um, uh, John Abnett. I wrote for, you know, I, I, it's like, I, you could make development deals in those days. I wrote for certain directors. Um, nothing got made. So I was actually let go as a client by my agents wow. when I was writing Hook and Dracula. <laughs> Hook was, oh, gosh. Hook, Hook was set up, uh, again, as an accident. Um I had written a big sci-fi thing for Craig Baumgarten, um, John Adler mm. um, at Sony that didn't go anywhere. But they said to me, what do you have that nobody wants to do? And I had pitched Hook all over town and been turned down. Who wants to see a story about a grown-up Peter Pan? It'll never, it'll never fly. Um, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and my family would give me Peter Pan gifts every Christmas to make me feel even worse. Um, <laughs> Tinkerbell. So when Craig Baumgart said, what did you got that nobody wants to do? And I said, hook. And it was a 10 page treatment. And he read it and said, this is for Nick Castle, who I just seen. He did the boy who could fly, which I thought was a mini masterpiece. Mm-hmm. So he put us together with Nick. Nick loved it. And at that time, Jeff Saganski was um, running Sony TriStar. And Jeff had a relationship with Nick and Craig. So Jeff said, yeah, I'll do you guys a favor. I'll make you a lowball development deal and you guys go away. So again, it was like, nobody cared. Here's some money. Go away. It's never going to get made. But mm-hmm. Jeff was doing a favor. Right. So go Nick ahead. and I spent the next year uh, at his house. I would sleep on my friend's couch out in L.A. Uh, writing Hook. Jeff he left TriStar and uh, uh, – Mike came, Metaboy came in, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and usually amazing. when you have a change of the guard, they get rid of all the stuff that's in development and can start over. Well, Mike read our script and went, wait a minute. <laughs> this is, you know, wow, this is big. You know? And uh, I was also writing Dracula at the same time for USA Network, uh, which nobody wanted to do. Okay. And, and suddenly, within a six, five or six-week period, I mean, John Levin, here's the magic, the special sauce. John Levin, who's my, still my representative after almost 40 years, John Levin took the script of, of Hook to Dustin and Robin, and John Levin took Dracula to Monona Ryder. Wow. And uh, within a four- or five-week period, and, and my agency had let me go. You know, John Lemon hadn't, but the agency said, you know, you're, you're old, you haven't got anything important, and, and nobody's going to do Hook, and nobody's going to do Dracula. Kicking themselves now. But yes. So, um, it was pretty magic. It was also one of those classic, you know, what, really? And uh, mm-hmm. we had, I mean, we were broke. We had, um, we were driving around the country with the kids, visiting friends. Mm-hmm. We were out in Wyoming, uh, visiting friends, and 
in those days we didn't have you had answering machines you didn't have cell phones no of course you go to the phone booth and check your answering machine you know with your little remote thing so there was a message on my entry we were in we were in jackson hall wyoming having lunch i was trying to hopefully my credit card was going to work so the kids wouldn't be embarrassed and um <laughs> i went downstairs to the phone booth and checked in to see if anybody called and john levin called and he said uh call me as soon as you can i have some news so I called him. goes already uh, yeah, so i called him you know but will my credit card work yeah it did um <laughs> i called it and um he said i have some news on hook I went, oh great you know somebody read it and he said well um he said there's a very important director that wants to do the film and i said if it's not if it's not spielberg we're not talking and he went that's who it is no way Oh my god! So I was able to go upstairs to my family and tell the kids and Judy that you know Hook Stephen's going to do Hook. Um, wow! Uh, and 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 so there was a certain jubilation, and I knew I could pay pay the rent next month. And mm -hmm. um, and then about five or six weeks later, uh, I got a call from John Levin again, uh, saying that Winona has given the script to francis coppola and he wants to do it oh we're going to set a meeting for you and so it's like what these were two scripts that nobody wanted in town I mean, actually columbia turned down with winona it's not columbia with winona and francis attached to dracula every studio in town turned the project down he had come off a bad scene with um godfather three which is That's a right. big disaster and nobody wanted to work with him mm -hmm. um, and he was determined to to make a film on budget with a genre, you know, that he really, and he loved the script. And, um, um, but again, Winona was my champion there. Everybody in town was trying to get her away from ICM. Mm -hmm. So CAA was courting her and they gave, they gave her all these scripts, you know, including mine. Uh, and when she, when mine was on the bottom and when CAA came back and said, what do you want to do? She said, I want to do Dracula. And they go, why? She said, well, have you read the script? She was looking to change her stripes. So she gave it to Francis saying, should I do this for my career? I see. And he said, not only should you do it for your career, but who's directing? Oh, isn't it amazing how your life can change within, like you say, five, uh, six weeks, up your or, life. Up or down. Up, you know, or up or down. Totally. Isn't it amazing just by putting in the work and the hard work you've done, the effort you got there, you and the team had got there to get these scripts ready and they hit the right people at the right time. Wow. Yeah, well, that was 20. That was, I was, uh, let's see, 77. Dracula, I started in 1977. In 1991, we made the deal. Um, Jeez. Uh, Hook, we started, Hook, we started in 1983. It was turned down everywhere. And then we made the deal in 1990. You know, so. It says uh, it all, doesn't it? Again, it's just, you got to be, you, ha you either have to take a patience pill or, or, you know, get your armor out and mm. get your helmet on uh, and be ready for all the body blows yeah, you're going to take. Totally, because yeah. you will. You'll get so many in this business. That's that's such a great story. So, okay, so do you now remember the moments when you were on set? I imagine you do. Let's go with Hook first because, uh, you know, uh, we really appreciate your time. And I already want to talk about Contact and some of the other movies you got coming up and Lara Croft and stuff as well. But obviously in terms of Hook, can you, did, did it still feel like a dream? Did you think any minute now it's going to fall down like some of the others had? And 
can you remember that first moment on set and the feeling of, you know, oh my gosh, here's my big movie made by Steven Spielberg? Yeah, it, it was actually nobody. It was just my, my John Levin and I, my, my, who's still my closest ally in this business. Uh, we were standing on the, on the, on the, on the hook pirate ship under construction, just the two of us watching all this activity, building this thing. You know, and uh, that was a pretty proud moment because it had, it, the idea had come from Jake, my son, who's now, you know, 40 and my writing partner. He's the one who said, what if Peter Pan grew up? And here was the answer. You know, um, the set was a, was a real learning experience for me. I watched the greatest, most successful commercial director in the world struggle every day to get what he wanted. Mm. Um dealing with all, you know, he had too many, a lot of writers on the script, not enough time to get the script the way he wanted it. And he was vamping every day. He would come out and if I had to fight 30 lost boys to get it, you know, to, uh, he, I was really impressed and also very empathetic towards what this great director was going through just to get something of what he wanted on the screen. Steven doesn't like the film. No, he bad mouths it. He, uh, does, he yeah. talks it down. Mm. Uh, he doesn't doesn't matter to him how successful it is and what a what a milestone it is in many many people's lives. Mm -hmm. And listen, there are things in the script that I miss, but what you see is the impact it had on the audience. I loved it. You know? I love this movie. I think I still do. I think it's fabulous. And Michael Kahn, the editor, Stephen's editor, was brilliant in constructing that film because it was not it was not edited the way it was shot. It was edited the way I I, I I structured it, but not the way Steven shot it. I see. And okay. he really had to be built in the editing room. Uh, right. And I was listening. The joy of it was watching Robin. Um, my kids learned a great, great lessons being, they were allowed to be on the set every day. I mean, because okay. Jake would sit behind Steven in the chair, you know, and watch the angles and everything, you know, because it was his movie. I mean, every day Robin would come up to Jake and bow and say, "Thank you, Jake Son, for my for my job. Thank you, Jake Son, for my job." Thank that you, Jake is Son. so lovely. It's Which is where I first begin to where I first begin to realize that writers are job creators. You know, all those people, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Yep. All those people that had employment that got to give their kids through college, all that stuff came because a writer wrote the script. Yep. Uh, but watching so Robin work and watching his his um, ethic and his his um, work ethic with the crew mm -hmm. you know he would stick around he wouldn't go to his trailer if he didn't have to he didn't have an entourage that came and took care of him he was always there as a crew guy he would give steven whatever number of takes that he wanted you know um he was incredibly generous and, and, when, and when he wasn't on the set he was rehearsing flying in the rigs or rehearsing the sword fights he did all of his work pretty much himself with the one one great stunt stunt guy that worked with him so watching Robin work was a real inspiration to me because it inspired my kids. So delightful. Dustin had a different way of working, which, you know, uh, mm -hmm. people that worked with him know what that is. Mm -hmm. um, and it did not make Stephen's life any easier. Right. Uh, the one big moment I remember on the set is that um, uh, it was right before they begin their final duel. And there's a he's got the kids and he yells back up. I'll, you know. Uh, there'll be daggers in the doors of your children's children's children to come back and fight me all that stuff uh and then steve robin flies back up and they go it's hook or me this time you know death's the only you know um they had this one take where they hit the swords and they had exchange and and um it was friday night uh and everybody was anxious to get out of town because it was robin's 40th birthday and he'd invited people up to the to the ranch okay um and they were on like take 37. wow 
And Dustin, Dustin kept saying, oh, Stephen, let me try one more thing on the canoe. We, we can do this. I know we've got it. I know we, we can do it. Finally, he turned to, Dustin turned to Robin and said, Robin, don't you agree? Just one more? And Robin said, I think we got it on take two, Dustin. <laughs> and it's the only time I've ever seen Robin sort of flare or have any kind of, where he wasn't cooperative. And he said, and, and Stephen said, that's a wrap. You know, and it was almost like that moment in the film where Dustin's standing there going, wait, come back and fight, you know, mm -hmm. for real. Yeah. Uh, but watching, watching Robin's work ethic and how hard, and him and Bob Hoskins, mm. Bob became a very dear friend. Uh, we lost him way too soon. But you watch yeah. that film now and you watch Bob and, and, and Robin work, they're the glue that holds that movie together. Caroline was a complete and total joy of a discovery. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She told Caroline Goodall, she, she mentioned about her audition to us. She was on episode 184 talking about uh, a little bit about Hook as well. And she mentioned her audition with, um, uh, and she's there with Robin Williams and she's there improvising away. And she suddenly realized Robin wasn't. She was like, um, and then, and she said, Robin, what, what's, you know, and he went, I've already got the job, dear. And it's just this wonderful, <laughs> wonderful moment of going, I'm leaving it up to you. You know, you need to get the job. I'll, yeah. You know, don't let me take over. And it was just so nice well, our, and so wonderful. It's really know. giving of him as an actor. Yeah. Our first day on set, I was an EP, but also did, I was sort of, the, I was in, I was there every day or could be there every day. I was working on Dracula. But first day on set is always interesting. And it was a scene they were shooting. I never met Caroline. It was a scene they were shooting uh, with a fight in the bedroom where the kids are, are being shadows on the wall and mm -hmm. he's trying to close the deal and he gets pissed off and yells at the kids. Um, and I walk on the set. And I'm just standing there because I'm, you know, Malia is Dustin's writer and we, were, we became great friends. And uh, I'm watching everything Stephen go on. And Caroline, who I've never met, looks at me and she says, are you James Hart? And I went, yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> And she came over and hugged me and she said, thank you. Wow. And this, it's the only time, except maybe from the only time I've ever, I mean, she was so genuine about the script. She even wrote a whole book about the writing of Captain Hook that she on beautiful calligraphy pages and uh, gave it to me. Um, uh, she was wonderful. And, and Stephen was right to cast her. She, we didn't need a movie star in that role. No. We needed a good actor. Mm-hmm. With the, with the three or four scenes she has that are so memorable, mm -hmm. um, I couldn't, uh, and that's a moment that still resonates with me is that, thank you. Yeah. So actor was thanking the writer for the script. What a delight. And yeah. you were mentioning there that while you were on set of Hook, you were writing Dracula at the time or reworking the scripts or drafts. Were you doing that in between takes were you going finding your own little cabin there to to, to well, write so, sometimes the worst place to be for a writer is on the set mm. um uh the few times i mean the, the, I, it's sometimes you just feel like you're an observer yeah you know and 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 you want to say hey can we go back and let me tweak that you know and and it's steven and unless steven asks you you don't say hey you know i mm. think you may not want to I would do that at Sunday nights on faxes to him, uh, which would show up in the sides the next day as if he'd written them, which was fine. So but sometimes the worst place to be for writers on a set, I'd rather be in the editing room. Mm. So when I was, when, and I, we were crunching on Dracula because they were starting to, they were starting to build and prep Dracula while they were finishing Hook. So I had, I was working, you know, um, and I did take Francis to the set one day. Yeah. He, Francis called me and said, my granddaughter wants to meet Captain Hook and Peter Pan. 
So I right. called Stephen and said, can I bring Francis to the set with you? And Stephen said, sure. Stephen calls him Francie. So, right. so I escorted Francis onto the set with, with uh, uh, Gia. And it was a scene where Dustin commit suicide, is going to commit suicide. It's the eating scene and all that stuff, you know, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite scenes. Bob's so good in that. Uh, he really manages that scene. We walk onto the set. Of course, everybody, Stephen introduced Francis and everybody's bows down and all this shit. And uh, <laughs> Dustin can't get through a take. He, he starts blowing his lines, you know, and like, oh, God, what a minute. And, and this is typical Dustin behavior, except this seemed authentic. He wasn't just trying to get something his way to change something. He couldn't get through a take. And Francis finally leans over to me and said, I think I'm making Dustin nervous. I think I better leave. So after the next busted take, he excused himself and and left with Gia, and I stuck around for a while, and and Dustin was fine. But after after Francis left and the, we wrapped for the day, Dustin came over and he said, "Do you think Mr. Coppola liked me? Do you think that I did I was he did I do something wrong? Was I you know? It's like Dustin Hoffman was like groveling for attention from this man. Mm. And Dustin's an actor." He yeah. wanted, he, he'd never met Francis. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was interesting to watch him sort of reduced to um, that kind of uh, puddle uh, in front of Francis. Yeah. And, and for Francis to recognize that and go, I should get out of here. That's, that is really, yeah, so. yeah, that is fascinating. It must happen quite a lot, though. I must, that, that kind of fear, it's, I suppose it's not easy being an actor, but this is Dustin Hoffman. Well, the, you know? the point is, it doesn't matter where you yeah. are in your career, somebody like Francis Coppola walks up and if you're not, you're not sure the ground you're standing on, it's going to mm-hmm. get unsteady. Mm. Yeah. You're being um, judged or you be there, they think that. Yeah. That was a moment that, that I have such a vivid, I can see the looks on Dustin's face when you blow a take. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's embarrassing anyway, isn't it? I mean, but to do it in front of Francis and, and everybody else, it's to have a visitor on set and, and blow your lines. Yeah, unfortunately, Stephen was used to that behavior out of Dustin, but for other reasons. Yes, yeah. It sounded yeah. like a fraught set. It sounded like a great set. Yeah. I mean, the same for you, it must have been finally one of your scripts is actually getting made and yet by one of the best filmmakers on the planet with one of the, or two of the biggest stars, you know, around at the time as well. It must have felt amazing. It did. I think if I'd have been, you know, Stephen and I are the same age, so I wasn't the 24-year-old kid that was, you know. No. Uh, I, I, I had some miles on me too and some experience on me too. So I was just trying to get the best. I, want, I just wanted to get the best. What I learned is because mm. Stephen came on and, dra- and Francis came on after I'd written the script. I created those, not them. But yeah. what I learned was the job of the screenwriter is not to impo- try to impose their vision on the director, but to enable the director and to find their own and hopefully you dovetail with some of your some of the work you want i watched steven struggle i have great i had great respect for what he went through uh and i also learned that if i discovered something before him and told him that he didn't want to hear it hmm. he did discover it himself like uh, rufio's death was cut out of the script right the mermaids were cut out of the script toodles hmm. was cut out of the script you know i mean i went bonkers and yeah. uh robin was upset when toodles was cut out and what we learned is he had to find a he, he the director had to find a reason for that function in the narrative and the storytelling to exist. You know, mm. um, I had a great scene with the mermaids, incredible scene. Um, uh, that was right out of the Barry novel that had never been done. And 
Stephen couldn't figure out a way that why it needed to be there or justify the screen time. So, but they did is they found a way that they give the oxygen to, to Peter and, and send him on to his next adventure, which is perfect. But it took, and when Toodles was cut out, we all went, why? You know, Toodles is the soul of the piece. So, mm-hmm. um, to Stephen's credit, and in Rufio's death, I kept, I kept saying, Stephen, you can't have, you can't have tomatoes and marbles and mirrors in Neverland and nobody died, then if, what is, what is, if there's nothing at risk for Peter, if, if Peter's there to risk to, to save his children and nobody can die, where's the jeopardy? Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the point? And finally, I was actually working on Dracula in my little office. The stunt player for Robin, who was a wonderful stunt guy, looked a lot like Robin, came in and said, we're going to kill Rufio. And I went, yes. <laughs> and I don't know why he made the decision. I don't mm-hmm. know why the decision was made. And I stopped lobbying a long time ago. I'd given, I'd said, okay, you're, he's just Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly they were going to do it. And I just went, yes. Yeah. But if you look at the film, Rufio dies, but there's no aftermath. There's no grieving. There's no, the boys are all cheering happy and they fly mm-hmm. and get the ready. You know, there's, there's no, um, it doesn't land because he shot it after having already shot other scenes. I see. Yeah. So they weren't he shot it. And it. it's still yeah. one of the most important scenes for the Rufio fans. I mean, it's a scene that affected that, that Rufio fans all over the world still talk mm-hmm. about. And I'm glad it's there. It belonged there and it should have been there in the beginning. There's yeah. Another reason for my heart chart. God damn it. You know? Yeah. There's no, a absolutely. Rufio dies. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting how you say you want to find his own way there. And I think sometimes yeah. some directors do that. And what about when you're producing them? Because you did produce uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and you didn't write it. We Could you then see the other side of that? And Lucinda's obviously a producer. Could you see, you went, ah, okay, because Mary Shelley was credited writer with Steph Lady. Um, and Frank Darabont. And Frank Darabont, of course. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Kenneth Branagh would have had a hand in that being very skilled as well. Yeah. What was that like just to produce then and not be the writer? Uh, it was no fun. <laughs> um, I had a great time. I had a great time with Steph Lady. I had a great time with Darabont. But once once Branagh became involved and the studio sort of imposed their will on it, even Francis was was uh, was sidelined. It was not fun. Uh, okay. And there, I think the results, the movie's not bad, but it's not the movie that Frank Darabont wrote. And not right. the film that, not the reason we set out. Francis and I didn't want to get typecast. You know, they asked us to do Frankenstein. He said, I won't direct it. Um, I don't want to get typecast like that. You know, I'm sure with a, with a certain amount of money, I, it would have been easy to convince me and was. Yeah. But again, John Levin found Steph Lady's script, which was an interesting, an interesting enough take on, on the book. And nobody had ever really done the book. Mm. And then Darabont came on board at the studio's behalf, but I thought it was great. And I had known Frank for a long time and, it, and, and I knew it was going to be the last script he didn't direct. Um, he was working on Shawshank then and his script was wonderful. It, yeah. it told the creature story that we wanted to tell, you know, um, and made Victor the monster. Um, and when Breno got involved, it, we, it lost, it lost that, it lost. It was just going to be about a homeless guy, you know. This is this is about a homeless guy that that that, that society turns into a monster, mm. you know. Um, and it just went it went in a different direction. Different There's some direction. wonderful moments in it. You know? Totally. And what what from that did you learn in terms of you know you've produced many things moving forward? What did 
that teach you from a screenwriting side and from a producer side that our listeners can learn and myself and Lucinda can? Well, I mean, I even go back to Francis. Francis did a cut of the film that uh, right. nobody saw. He uh, offered a cut. Here's how I solved the problems. And Brenner was not interested. Uh, don't worry, we've, we've got this handled. So I think the the lesson is uh, don't produce any don't produce something where where the the partners are not all on the same page, uh, and the studio wants one thing, the director wants one thing. We sort of came. I was lucky enough to even get a producer credit on it. The real producer is John Veach, who right. um, great gentleman. I learned so much from him about physical production and about how to manage people. Um, this is this guy was a legend when he came to the project to save it, to keep it on budget and, and deal with the actors, a deal with the director. Um, I think that, that when you're outgunned, you're, you're sidelined um, from having any real input, then you have to, you got to cut your losses and let go and uh, uh, let it be. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to do that again. Uh, that's why I'm not, I don't produce that much anymore. I, I don't, uh, I'm a better, I'm a better writer. I'm a better mentor now. I'll mentor people's projects and help produce them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a better writer now, but I don't want to just produce and not have some hand in the cookie jar with the, with the creator, with the creatives is. I just don't. Yeah. No, that, that um, is really interesting. I think, because that is your only, uh, as far as I can tell, producer credit where you just produce, you've obviously exec produced and been involved, but you've written something, then you'll come on produce as well. Uh, and is that, like I say, so that you can keep your hand in the cookie jar? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, when you, especially when you take on something you're going to produce and you're not going to get all the, the, the rewards for the writing or the residuals or the bonuses mm -hmm. or all that stuff you're producing, you don't get, you're the last person to get paid, mm -hmm. you know, um, you, it better be something that you're passionate about and are, and are willing to um, put it out there the way you do when you put a script out there. I'm doing that on two or three projects now. Um, uh, and you, you better be very passionate about it. And if you're doing it for payday, take the money and, and let, the, let them take over. Cause they don't, they, if they don't want your opinion, if they don't want your input, if they don't value your input, or they think you're an asshole, they don't want to work with you, mm -hmm. which is, that's also happened. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, sure. Don't do it again, you know. Remember that the next time that scenario comes up. Walk away. Yeah, you should always learn from your, from every single film you make, right? We're always learning and getting better. Um, and what I wanted to talk to you, obviously, Muppet Treasure Island, we could talk about, we could talk about Lara Croft, The Credit of Life. Contact, for me, was a real movie that really touched me and had a real effect on me as just a beautiful, gorgeous stunning piece of writing but also i love the movie and it introduced me to jodie foster really loves her so oh my gosh this is jodie foster being serious and wonderful and it really made me you know think about screenwriting and writing um what was it what did the idea just come to you because it's just if not if people haven't seen contact it is fantastic it's a sci-fi Stunning movie. Um, was this your original idea you came up with and just went with? Because you mentioned oh, earlier no, you no, like no, sci-fi. No, no, this is Carl Sagan. This is his novel, the only fiction novel Carl Sagan ever wrote was Contact. Mm, of course. Um, and um, uh, we were just finishing Hook, and uh, the my agents came to me with with the the fact that it was in development at Warner Brothers. Um, I was a huge Carl Sagan fan, a big sci-fi. Everybody knew I was a big sci-fi nut. Mm. Um, and I said, no, uh, the book is, the, the book is, that's, that's, the book is, 
unadaptable in my opinion or shouldn't be um and uh i'm you know i would i would it would depend on what carl sagan had to say oh well he has nothing to do with it he's not involved and i went why mm-hmm. you know and they kept chasing me uh i found out there were seven other writers on the on the project before me some of them academy award winners at least nominees right uh seven and there had been two other directors ahead of ahead of the, uh, that had come and gone right the, the film had been in development for 10 years I see. And, um, okay. It started out as a, an idea that actually Carl had with, with Francis Coppola to do a live kind of H.G. Wells, what if they landed, you know, kind of. Uh, and then it developed into the novel he wrote with uh, Andrea and his wife, who's wonderful. I've still got my note from them right there. And I just kept saying no, uh, not unless Carl, you know, is involved. Says it's okay. And yeah. I found out that uh, and then I read the scripts. The scripts were shite. Right. They had nothing to do with the book. Mm. One of them even had a, uh, her son stowing away on the journey. You know, I'm going, I'm going, who are these? I found out that not one screenwriter had ever talked to Carl or Ann. Wow. And not one director had ever talked to Carl or Ann. And I went, how is it possible? Because, oh, well, he's a, you know, he's Carl Sagan. He's not a screenwriter. He's not a, and I'm going, come on. So I said, here's the deal. I will do this only if Carl Sagan approves me. And that if he's a part of the development process and you pay me all this money and you fly my family back from hook to New York and we go spend, you know, completely believing they would say, no, go screw yourself. They said, yes. <laughs> Love it. So, and to Linda Ope's credit, uh, the, the producer who, who, uh, who had, um, who brought me in on the project. Um, we had a wonderful weekend with our families uh, in upstate New York with the Sagans. Mm-hmm. Um, our kids were kind of the same age and they had, had a new baby Sam um, and I spent the whole weekend interviewing Carl like a journalist oh, using those yeah. questions mm-hmm. that I had learned from Mr. Coppola uh, you know what, what does you want to say about science how do you want people to, what do you want the audience to, what's, you know, why did you do this where do you know and, and taking down his answers and I would do notes at the end of every day and we spent three days wonderful long weekend before we flew to London mm-hmm um, and out of that weekend, we found the movie inside his book. Uh, and the big one was the fact that at the center of the novel, there's that meeting where she goes to the center of the galaxy and meets what she thinks is her father. Yep. It's in the book and it's beautiful. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's what the audience is waiting for. Yeah. But there's no relationship with her father in prior to that. Oh, yeah. So, and I said to Carl, we can't, you, this is, you can't have this scene without knowing why it's important to her, why this man, why the aliens, you know. And he said, you're right. So we sat down and we built that relationship. They're stargazing together. Mm-hmm. The, you know, and, and the line, uh, if it's not us, it must be an awful waste of space. That's not Carl Sagan. That's me. I say me. It's actually Thomas Mann in um, Coming of Age in the Milky Way. Uh, who in the 16th century had this long quote about uh, sort of anti-religion about if, if the, if God went to all this trouble to create this mighty place and wonderful place, you know, uh, and it's, and he did it all for us. What a waste of space. Mm. So that became the theme that ran through. That wasn't in the book, but Carl said, that's it. That's, that's it. That's thematically what runs through the book. Also the um, love story between her and Matthew McConaughey. Mm Mm-hmm. I found there were there was no love. I found there was no love story in the book. I created one, but 
Palmer Joss's character was in his 50s. And he was a man, you know, who had seen a lot of experience and had a lot of religious experience and was, but it was a kind of a kind of a, about industry and what have you, who fell in love with this woman. And she wasn't looking for Matthew McConaughey. She was looking for her father. And that's yeah. who Palmer Joss represented was her father. And listen, I wrote, I spent two and a half years with Carl and Ann. It was wonderful. Um, and George Miller was supposed to direct. That's the director that I wanted to see that version of Contact. Okay. Yep. Jody left the hot zone, which I wrote for Linda as well. She was going to do the hot zone. And when she left the hot zone, she went right to contact. So I got, I got lucky with her leaving one sinking ship and going and raising and saving another. They brought in Minnow Mays. Uh, they brought in, uh, Linda brought in uh, Michael Goldenberg to rewrite me. Okay. Which was a good revision. It happens a lot, right? I mean, in terms of those yeah. people who don't know Hollywood that well or writers out there, it, it happens, right? You, you write a script yeah. for someone, you're getting paid, then you'll get rewritten. Yeah. yeah. And then Minnow Mays came on to work with George Miller, who did, who did not get credit, who did wonderful work. Oh. Um, and when George left over a dispute uh, with um, the studio on the budget, they brought in Zemeckis. And Zemeckis read everybody's scripts. Uh, the script that that uh, that uh, Michael Goldenberg rewrote was essentially my script with some changes, but didn't have my name on it. So Zemeckis uh, said, "This this is and usually a director will do that. They'll pick somebody they know they'll be comfortable with and will be their person." Oh yeah. So yeah. Uh, and Michael did a great job, uh, but and, and, and then and then it was disappointing to me. I wasn't on the set. I got reports from Jody and from uh, James Woods, who were telling me what's going on. Mm -hmm. And um, and at the end, when we Carl died, we lost. When we lost Carl, I kind of went, "That's it for me." I'm, um, this is too sad. You know, he's such a. And we had such a great time together, and he was such a great. Uh, he's not at all what you think. He never talked down to people. He all he was interested in was communication. How do you communicate? Mm -hmm. I watched him at Disney World. We were all together at Disney World, and the Disney characters would come over to the table. You know, when you're having breakfast and. And he and Ann's baby Sam was one year old then. And baby Sam is like, oh, yay, Pluto or Goofy. It was, it was Goofy. And I'm sitting there watching Carl watch Goofy do all the pantomime and all the stuff they do, you know, and mm -hmm. making the kids laugh. And uh, Carl says, excuse me, Mr. Goofy, that's your question. Goofy, you know, goes, <laughs> says, do they give you special training in nonverbal communication? Goofy goes, <laughs> and he goes back to his thing. You know, I'm watching Carl, just watching him. Give me, Mr. Goofy, another question. Um, if a child is afraid of you, do they teach you techniques to, to, to make the child unafraid or, or to allay their fears? Nods again. Yep. And, and then now, the Goofy sits down at the table, and Carl is talking to Goofy, and Goofy starts writing out answers on his big autograph pad, you know, with his big paw. You know, and now tables around us are going, why does a Goofy come to our table? Hey, mom, why is that? You know, and I'm sure by this time, this whoever Goofy was knew they were talking to fucking Carl Sagan. You know, you know, imagine back in the dressing room afterwards. You wouldn't believe what, you know, and that was who Carl was. He was only interested in how people and how things could be communicated. How from light years across the galaxy, how do you reach each other? How do you communicate? Yeah. Um, I didn't get to get to participate on the set uh which is okay yeah uh, i was very upset at the end when uh they were going to i wasn't even going to arbitrate 
and then I read the, the shooting script. And went, wait a minute, this is what this is our weekend. This is the, what this is the work that we did, you know, mm-hmm. five seven years ago. And uh, turned out in the arbitration, um, I got first position credit and pissed a lot of people off. Um, right. That is essentially what it is essentially the, the film that we found in the book that weekend. You know, and uh, it was. I think it's probably the single most. Um, life-changing experience that I've had of spending that kind of intimate quality time with Carl and Ann. That sounds uh, incredible. Exquisite um, people. Uh, exquisite. Lost him way too soon. Sadly, yes. Um, and we could talk all day and this is amazing and obviously what's great about you, Jim, is you're still writing and you're still producing and you're still helping filmmakers and screenwriters and that is incredible. And you have, uh, what I saw there was so many post-it notes in the book. Uh, and this is obviously you where you put notes and what works and what doesn't. Is that your, is that how you like to work with those sort of techniques? I always tell, they say, what's the secret of adaptation? I say, read the book first and don't think you're going to read it once just for fun and then go back and do your, said, read it and do your notes while you're doing it. And the, and the book is the wellspring. A lot of people don't go back to the novel. You see all kinds of adaptations that go off the rails. Mm-hmm. The book is the wellspring. The author has more answers than you do. That's a and you great bit of you respect the author and go back to them um, whenever you can. That's what saved Contact. That's what saved Hot Zone. <clears throat> That's what saved um, Tucker Everlasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the adaptations I've done, um, I always go back to the book. The only one it didn't save was Sahara. Right. Because okay. that, movie, that movie was better than, than his book. You know, it just was flat out and he killed it. He's Clive Custer killed that movie and it was better than his book. Um, absolutely incredible. And finally, if we could, some tiny bit of advice that maybe you've not said for screenwriters out there who are maybe struggling right now or about to start. Um, is there anything you would say you would give them? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it is a, you're in a, when, when I started out, we didn't have uh, ISA and screencraft and, the blacklist and inkwell and mm-hmm. we didn't have workshops and fellowships and, and studios giving fellowships and the Nichols fellowship. We didn't have anybody encouraging us to write. Uh, there's more outlets now for writers than there ever were before. We didn't have IMDB, mm-hmm. you know, you couldn't go online and get your box office grosses. Um, uh, we didn't have slate. Uh, I would say uh, blacklist that uh, Frank Leonard started. That's how my daughter's first film got made. She posted her script on blacklist. Um, you're protected. Uh, you can sponsor you. You can get readings. And, and, and Blacklist has uh, several hundred uh, members who are there to read to find material for their bosses. And uh, it's uh, in your and and it's protected. And your and I would say in the Writers Guild East, we we help sponsor it. Um, we didn't have that. And also, the new writers are who the business is looking for. They don't, they're tired of me. You know, they, they want, they want the young, the young new voices. And, um, uh, there's now more buyers than there ever were. We used to have three networks. Now you got what? 57, 68, a mm-hmm. hundred. Um, so it's an opportunity that we didn't have. And, and all of the, all the, this, I would say the Austin film festival, which I've been doing for 27 years, is still the best festival that celebrates writers enter those contests. You will get networked. Um, um, there's a whole listing of the best, um, uh, film festivals and writers festivals to enter. 
don't be afraid to do that. Your 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 stuff's going to get read. You place your producers are looking for you. This is a whole culture of this has changed now. Sundance used to be it. That was it. Yep. Uh, I could never get into Sundance. They always turned me down. They didn't like my scripts. Hmm. Uh, and then I got to, then I, when I became a mentor. I kept saying, no, 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 no. I want to be mentored. I don't want to mentor. I want to be mentored. <laughs> totally. So, uh, I, and I do think that you, it, and I'll say this again. If it, if you're, if you're reluctant to write, if it's hard for you to get up the guts to write, somebody's going to come in and take your place. The other thing I would say is that the other thing that helped, the other thing that helped me, this is Frank Pearson's advice to me when I had, I had Coppola and Spielberg doing hook and I wasn't handling it very well. Um, I was kind of down on uh, myself. Uh, he got me drunk at the, at the hole in the wall gang bar at Sundance nice. uh, and said something to me that stuck with me. Um, that, uh, that uh, even those two big directors that, that nobody in our business has a job, no director, no producer, no actor, no set designer, no editor, no composer, no, no um, um, special effects wizard, no costume designer, no composer. No, nobody has a job in this business until some writer types the end. And I went, oh, thanks, Frank. That'll last. That'll help me for about an hour. <laughs> and I didn't realize how important. I didn't realize how important what he was has said. If you, and and I didn't realize that we're job creators. Writers are job creators. And just next time you're you're tempted to walk away or turn away or change the channel when those end credits are rolling, just look at all those end credits. Yeah, if you don't believe me. All of those end credits, not one of those end credits would exist unless some writer had the courage to type the end. And as soon as I started thinking of myself as a job creator, that's that was a game changer for me. I'm not just a writer, but every time a writer sits down and has the courage to type the end, they are creating potential for hundreds and thousands of jobs. Um, I did a little math last year on the number of TV programs that were broadcast on our, over here. The 343 series, 345 series uh, that were broadcast, and you and crews averaged between 200 and 800 on a show. That's just the crews. That had nothing to do with distribution or any of that thing. Um, that's a million jobs, you know. Um, Fox and I, the other thing I learned when I saw I was screening Epic for um, mm. I was doing a workshop with some Taiwan animators and we showed them Epic and I never realized I'm standing up there talking and the last credit comes up this is good on Fox for doing this and the credit said over 1 million work hours were expended in the making and authorized distribution of this motion picture no over 12,000 jobs were created in yeah. the authorized of this distribution. Over 1 million work hours were expended in the authorized, in the production authorized distribution of this film. Then it named the 50 babies that were born during the eight years <laughs> it took us to make Epic. <laughs> <laughs> but I realized that Frank Pearson was right. Um, we're job creators. And yeah. all of those, look at the, look at Star Wars, look at Mandalorian, look at mm -hmm. the, uh, any of the blockbusters, all the Guardians, again, look at all the credits at the end of those films. It started with a writer. And um, if I can, if that's, if that, that's something you should, that new writers should understand that that's the potential that they have when they have the courage to sit down and write. Um, and if that doesn't inspire you, then, you know, get a day job and support yourself that way while you find your Jones, while you find your writing, don't be afraid to take a day job and support your habit.
Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. That's such amazing advice, Jim. Thank you so much. And that was inspiring. Um, it's true. We create work for people when you write a script, it, or it certainly can do. It's got the potential. And I love that. Um, can people follow you online? Are you on Twitter? Are you on the uh, the old socials? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. The Heart Chart is on Twitter, uh, at The Heart Chart. Um, on Facebook, on Instagram, at The Heart Chart. Um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you can visit the website. My, my email address is on the website. My email address is in the toolkit. I don't, I don't, I don't shy away from any of that. Uh, we try to do master classes. Um, we did, we did five this, this year because of the pandemic. Probably mm-hmm. won't do any more till next year. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, go check out the toolkit. Use the twenty percent discount. Um, mm-hmm. Let me know what you like and don't like. We're in, we're in the, we're in the midst of expanding the heart chart. We have a whole Chilean. Uh, De- developer group right now that's taking the chart and expanding it and to be able to use for a whole season for TV, um, expanding the ability to follow single characters uh, through multiple charts. Uh, uh, these are all coming from users that have asked us, can it do this? Can you do- use it for this? Mm-hmm. So we're responding to, um, to those users, which always makes me happy that somebody's getting, they're actually using it and getting a, uh, it's helping their work. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, same with us. It's so important and it's so nice. You feel great, don't you? When they go, oh, it's actually really useful. Thank you. And you go, oh, well, I'll no. send you, I'll send you uh, the tool, the download uh, on the house. You can, Bless you can, you. You Thank can you. use it and then, and then I want you to review it. All right. I'll 100% do that for okay. you, sir. Yes. Right. Amazing. That's brilliant. I don't know what you're going to production on, but, uh, you know, kudos. Thank you. Yeah. Thank I'll you. Fly. Yeah, we've got separate yeah. projects and both of us are about to go. So it's super exciting. Um, but Jim, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, really appreciate it. You can follow us at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter. We are on Instagram now, the Filmmakers Podcast. Uh, and if you want to email us and get in touch or maybe come on the show, the Filmmakers Podcast at gmail.com. Tell us how much you love Jim. Thank him for his amazing, <laughs> amazing talk today. Really appreciate that. You can follow me at Giles Alderson on Twitter as well. Lucinda, where can people find you? You can follow me at Picture Perfect, which is at PickPerf Limited. Come and say hi. Um, ah, PickPerf. 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 Do say hi. And remember, you can yeah. go make your film. You can make it happen. And like Jim says, uh, you can create work for people. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. We will see you all next <laughs> Tuesday, as always. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Lucinda. Go type Take the care. end. Go type the end. Go, Go type, type the end. end. Type Go type now. the end. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Bye bye. Bye, Jim.